1: Of a plague ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast, which is now part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the Jam Bunker on day 192 of the pandemic. It is a lovely fall day here. Looks like summer is fading away. Max, as always, is asleep. Got a great show today. Whitney Hill, who is the author of the Eldritch Sparks series, is here. Her first book, Elemental, is out now. Book two is coming out in November. Whitney is one of my favorite type of writers, She is not at a big publishing house. She, in fact, started off writing fan fiction, built a fan base there, and then she decided that she wanted to write the kind of stories that she wanted to write instead of doing fan fiction, and she began this series. And she's done it. She's done the first two books during National Novel Writing Month. I love people like that. I love people who have to write and who write because they Have to get these stories out So we'll get to all that in just a few minutes She's brilliant, as you know We have a little business to cover at the start We do two shows every week On Monday and Thursday There's two things you can do for us To help us spread the word First, leave a review Wherever you listen to podcasts And Peer Pressure Works Tell your friends about us We host a monthly happy hour Where we bring an author in And have a nice conversation And some drinks on a Friday night You can find all about that at the writersjam.com. While you're there, if you want to buy any of the books of the people who have been on our show, you can click on our bookshop link and do that. When you go through our link, two things happen. You help support local and independent bookstores, and we get a little money back, helps us keep the lights on in the bunker. Max likes good food, helps us with that. Also at the website, the monthly newsletter, you can sign up for it we send out book recommendations, reviews, highlights from the podcast and most importantly, cool things that are happening around the web. You can also support the Solid Listen network by clicking on the Patreon button. When you do that for a dollar or $5 a month, you get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours and bonus content. Okay, time to indulge me for just a couple minutes. There's a show on Apple TV Called Ted Lasso And if you haven't seen it I really recommend it The odd thing about it Is that it grew out of a character That began as a TV commercial When I think NBC Got the English Premier League uh, Jason Sudeikis did this Character named Ted Lasso Who was an American football coach Who ended up going to England to coach Football, soccer When it came out I didn't watch it I had no desire to watch it. It felt like a gimmicky thing. And a friend of mine said, you need to watch this show. And I did. And it's brilliant. It is one of the kindest shows I've ever seen on television. And if you listen to the program, you've heard me talk about Michael Schur and The Good Place and Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like shows that are kind, shows that are about kindness between people, that... That do not have a darkness to them And Ted Lasso is that show It is the show about Kindness and optimism In the face of darkness around you And every Friday When the new episodes come out It breaks me And this week was no different And I won't ruin the show for you Because you need to experience that kindness As it happens on the show But there's a scene where he's shooting darts With against, actually, uh, the guy who played Giles in Buffy, the TV show. I have come to find out that he generally plays assholes on TV. I had no idea. I only know him from Buffy where he was not an asshole, say, for a few moments here or there. And there's this line that the whole scene is built around. It's a Walt Whitman quote. Be curious, not judgmental. I've watched this scene two dozen times since Friday. It's a minute and a half. I've cried every time I watched it because it is the essence of humanity. And I've been reflecting a lot since Friday, since Justice Ginsburg passed away and reaching out to my friends to find out if they're okay and reflecting on the Black Lives Matter of protest and reaching out to my friends and asking if they're okay and knowing that I have been powerless in my own way to change any of their experiences. All I can do is offer to sit and there's nothing that feels like you're less powerful or that you have agency than to know that your friends are in pain and, and afraid and to have... No ability to, to fix or change any of that. Be curious and not judgmental and putting those two, two experiences next to each other. I think that I've watched that scene over and over again. That show, Ted Lasso, that show is the exact opposite of what toxic masculinity is. It is about defining manhood not as competition but as compassion And to be curious and not judgmental To not believe that you need To know everything And to not believe that knowing everything Is the goal But instead the goal should be To be curious And to help people find their way And to want to know About people as they find their way It's such a simple Philosophy It's such a simple idea And yet Every time I watch it again, I've watched it two dozen times. It, it strikes me that it's taken 48 years to hear that and know that and to see that. And just reflecting on everything in my life, and the world around me, it has made me profoundly sad. And this is not a new realization, not something that I just came to, but it's one of those moments where in art you are given a clarity for a feeling that you've had. And I've told folks, the last three and a half years of trauma therapy that I've done have unlocked an ability in me that regular people have, right, which is to deal with your emotions and, and to be okay with them, to feel safe with them. And then you see be curious, not judgmental. And I think, yeah, why are we not... And when I say we, I very specifically mean men, and and more specifically mean white men, not fostering that. To be curious and not judgmental. Because it does make the world a better place when you do that. It just does. And I say all that because I just got done listening to the interview you're about to hear. And Whitney and I have become friends off air. And Knowing how that friendship has evolved in the last month, month and a half, and hearing the things she says and the things that she doesn't say is profound to me. And you'll hear it because if you have people of color in your life and you are, like me, a white person, you will hear the moments of editing that happen. You will hear the moments when she doesn't say all of the things that maybe she wanted to say. Because there is not a safety in that. And it's a reminder, people like me, that no matter how much work you think you've done and no matter what kind of space you think you've cleared, it's not enough. The work's not done. You doing it just for you isn't enough. There's a whole world out there that we need to continue to fight, that we need to continue to fight for and keep in your heart to be curious and not judgmental. So that's what I have been thinking about this morning as I put this together. I'm really excited for you to hear my conversation with Whitney because she's brilliant and kind and funny and just such a fascinating person. We had a lovely time talking. I think you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my interview with Whitney Hill.
2: You know, I was kind of doing some some research and and found something that said um, empires last you know on average about two hundred fifty years, and we're coming up on that mark in yeah. the United States. So it's just going to be really interesting to see. You know, realistically, the United States is an empire, and oh, how 100%. that? You know, how is that um, going to transition or dissolve or transform?
1: And. So- it, it's all, it, almost all of them are always destroyed just like this internally exactly. by, you know, their own sort of um, their own cheese. And it's, you know, I got one, having interviewed a lot of people from around the world during the pandemic. But two, when my writing partner lives in Germany and spending a lot of times overseas... I've I've been talking with my my friends over there, and I'm like, well, this is maybe a good thing that America is receding from the world stage, and all of them have said the same thing, which is no. Like, this is... You have been the buffer between us and places like Russia or places like China that have different um, ways in which they approach the world. And they're like, there's not somebody that's ready to stand up. Like, is it going to be Germany? Is it going to be the European Union? Like they're like yes maybe you fading isn't a bad thing but there's nobody is prepared to be the new thing.
2: Yeah well and that's the thing it's 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 not just everything that's going on it's that you know a lot of our outlets are um removed. So even as a writer if you're staying inside um you know and you're happily typing away you know for me at least I need to get out and and hike. I need to be out in the woods. Um I like to travel. So you know those were things that I would regularly do. But, um, you know, even if you're socially distanced hiking outdoors, not everyone else is wearing their mask and being socially distanced. So, you know, you're like, okay, what's more important right now? My, my mental health and getting this, you know, rejuvenating hike or not dying because somebody was asymptomatic of of COVID and, um, bumped into me on the trail.
1: Yeah. And sneezed as I walked by. Yeah. yeah. Every time I go out, I think I've done so good. Like, is this like, you know, because like you, like, I like, I need to hike. I need to be outside. Mm-hmm. I do Olympic lifting. My gym is run by a doctor and it's a warehouse and they have it set up with like 30 foot space. Like they have all that stuff. But every time I leave the house, I'm like, well, what am I going to slip up and do the one thing? It's like a zombie movie. Am I mm-hmm. like, I made it this far. And then I went out to do this thing. And then I got bit by a zombie because that was the one time that I didn't do the thing. Like <laughs> That's every outside interaction is a zombie movie to me.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean it's funny you mentioned a zombie movie cuz I uh started picking up my running on a local trail and I was like, okay, cardio rule number one. <laughs> you got <be, laughs> to right. be able to get away. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. I don't I don't know if it's uh, zombies cops, covid am like I don't know what it is, but we got to be ready to go. <laughs> That's
1: funny. Well, I would like to say I did not do that, but on the first day like the first week of this I'm an REI co-op member. I ordered 30 days of food. I mm-hmm. got an extra canister of propane for my, ta- you know, I got and I ha- I literally have a duffel bag pack that if shit goes wrong, mm-hmm. pu- it's a it's it's a, like an Everest duffel. I put that on my back. My dog and I are in the car. I can be out of here in five minutes. And I was like, I know that's a little crazy, but also. I don't think it's a little
2: crazy. I don't think it's crazy. I've done the same thing. I went and every time I go to the store I get a li- you know a few extra things cuz it's not just the pandemic now we're coming to the peak of hurricane season.
1: Right. So be like anything canned. Like I got a whole, I never keep a whole thing of canned any, mm-hmm. but I got two shelves of canned beans and vegetables.
2: Mhm. Jerky, um, nuts, you know, just yeah.
1: all the stuff. It's yeah. insane. But <laughs> like I, this is the liberal version of the bunker in your backyard, right? Like I'm going to have <laughs> And, you know, I've told my friends, like, look, if, if, if power goes out or something, the first thing you do fill up everything, everything that will fit water, you fill it up with water. Cause I have a, like, I got a propane stove. I'm like, I can boil the water. So like, Mm -hmm. but you can only boil what you have. So like, make sure you get a little boiler and just, I want your house to look like signs with just water stuff everywhere. (laughs) And they're like, but that's, I don't, I'm like, just trust me trust me you can you need water humans need water it's the first thing we need
2: <laughs> well don't forget your pets because you know they, they need water right
1: that's and that's what like i'm like fill up your bathtub like anything that'll hold water just put it in there the w- worst that'll happen is you dump it out like it goes back to the water supply um and then i'm like oh shit someone who looks and sounds like me saying that apocalyptic stuff is probably not something that brings comfort to people <laughs> I need to figure out a better way to do that because
2: most of the people
1: that look and sound like me that say that are not coming with good tidings.
2: Yeah, no, there's, I think there's a few of those out in the the boonies here. But I mean, it's also kind of a weird um, reflection on one's privilege as well because, you know, I can afford to buy extra food every week and stock up. Um, And I just, I kind of hope that everybody is taking that opportunity to stop and think like, are all of my neighbors able to do that? let alone, you know, are they able to eat, let alone stock up. Um, Yeah. so there are opportunities in all of this to really look and see where we can do more to help each other. Um, but you know, like you said, we're all individually locked in our houses and trying to focus on, on ourselves and are we going to survive COVID and are we going to have a job and you know,
1: and I was talking to a writer, I interviewed him earlier and he said, what's really weird about this is that time is we're disassociated from time. Like, humans live in a time where it's like, oh, Halloween is coming. I'm going to plan for Halloween. And I know kind of what's going to happen this Halloween because I've lived through many other Halloweens. And now it's like, I don't even know what tomorrow is going to look like. And it may not have any relation to yesterday. And so, the, the you know, I have a therapist. Like, I get to go see my therapist once every two weeks and, and, and the same sort of privileged thing. I'm like, I can't imagine people that are both don't have jobs that are sort of waiting on Congress to maybe or maybe not help them so they, you know, can eat or do they have to go to a food bank and, like, get all that stuff, who don't have any mental health. Because th- it's the mental health aspect of it that is, to me, equally important because, mm-hmm. you know, poor folks and, and, and you know, where I'm from, like, that you just don't have access to that. And, like, this is a time when so much is changing and mm-hmm. we disassociate from time. And so it becomes difficult to sort of exist Uh, you know I don't even know another word um that is the other thing that concerns me is there's going to be a lot of long-term emotional and mental outside damage outside of like if you live with somebody who's violent or anything like that just I think the normal living damage is going to be we're not going to know what that is for 10 years
2: no absolutely and I mean it's so I used to live in Europe and just um after, you know, after eight years in societies with uh, safety nets, <laughs> I, I loved the NHS. I never worried about anything, you know. Yeah. And then to come back here and have to argue the things that are, you, you know, in my mind, it's like, no, this is just a human right. Like, of course, I right. should be healthy or I should have access to certain things. And to come back here and, and, and have people not agree with that is just mind blowing to me. Like you do see how it also benefits you though. Right. In the event of a pandemic where all of us, you know, are suddenly in um very different straits. Or, you know, any of us could come down with this virus. Do you really want to go bankrupt? Because Right.
1: And you know, I can't when I was writing about technology, it was there's a lot of libertarians out there and I used I used to I used to tell him, I'm like, I don't understand how a libertarian idea that all people should have access, that no man should worry that any disease is going to kill him. That seems like a basic libertarian thing. And that, that, that man should not depend on a government or a company or an insurance industry to make sure they're okay. That seems to me to be the basic tenet of what libertarianism is, which is I should be free from the shackles of large institutional control, Mm -hmm. uh, and, they're like, well, no. I'm like, yeah, it's, that's the first right of that is that you should be able to exist so that you can reach your potential.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if you're yeah. worried, if a cold's going to kill you and it's hard to, you know, reach your potential. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's been truly bizarre. I don't know.
1: It's, well, I'm glad you're doing okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, well, you know, it, <laughs> definitely I'm doing well. Um, I'm healthy. I I still have a job, so I'm gonna, you know, touch wood, count my lucky stars. Yeah. And uh, you know, just try to find try to find ways to get back. So
1: Yeah. So you're in Durham, you're not from Durham.
2: No, no. I'm actually I was born in Pittsburgh. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I still got what family more? there. Uh the Hill District, as it happens.
1: Okay. <laughs> I've been looking at houses down there.
2: Nice, nice, yeah. So uh my family moved up to uh moved to California then moved to back to Pittsburgh, moved to Michigan. Uh,
1: So so you were born in the middle of them moving around?
2: No, no. They, um, my dad's from Pittsburgh as well. Okay.
1: So, and do you have brothers and sisters?
2: Yeah. I've got a a sister and a, and a half brother.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so were you guys, were you, what what were you like as a kid?
2: Uh, (laughs) I was a very big tomboy. Um, I, (laughs) <laughs> I had my own ideas about what things should and should not be. Um, <laughs> I believe there was a, a call home in kindergarten because I refused to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, uh-huh. and um, the, I guess the teacher asked, like, you know, is, is there some kind of religious, pro, uh, you know, prohibition on it? And and my mom said, no, no, absolutely not. I'll talk to her. And apparently, when I was asked, um, you know what? why aren't you standing for Pledge of Allegiance? I said, because it's stupid to talk to a flag. So I was, I was that kid. Uh
1: Um, And that always goes over well. (laughs) Yeah. That is accepted. Yeah. People accept those things with grace.
2: Yeah. No. Yeah. So, um, my mom straightened that out for me. And, uh, you know, my sister. Like,
1: she didn't straighten it out. She straightened it out for you. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You still think it's, it's a little weird to talk to a flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> and then, you know, my sister was, um, I think, I think in a way, maybe always looking up to me. Um, so
1: you were the oldest.
2: I'm the old, well, I'm the middle of, of the three kids. Yeah. Um, my half brother's older. And then my sister's 18 months younger. Did he live? Did the half brother live with you? No, no. No, so, yeah. so I'm a half-sister, same way. Okay. Uh,
1: So she was sort of like trailing around.
2: Well, in a way, and then kind of, you know, like the friendly sibling rivalry. Um, But we were always, you know, really close, and and we're close to this day. So that's, you know, that was always something that was really important in my family, is that um, if you have nobody else, you have your sister. Yeah. So...
1: That's good. Uh, my sister and I have had to. Uh, we are five years apart, and we always tell folks we were raised as, as only children in a house. Just because we were never in the same school, we were mm-hmm. never in the same place. She was a concert pianist. I was sort of a jock nerd, and so literally, even in our small town, it's like there were two groups of people, and we were in the opposite groups of people. Mm-hmm. And it took it's like it took us into our forties where we were like, you know, we're. Everybody else is old, and it's just us. You know, like there's no, we don't have kids. Like, we need to figure this out immediately.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, and it's you know, at the end of the day, you have your family. Well, I should say I'm lucky to have my family. Yeah,
1: (laughs) well, you always have them. It just doesn't always, yeah, it's not always sure that's a good thing. (laughs) Very true. Very true. (laughs) So, uh, why were you guys moving around?
2: Um, my dad took, you know, different, different job opportunities. Gotcha. Um, we, you know, we ended up settling in Michigan for most of my childhood and then, uh, part of Michigan, uh, Metro Detroit. Okay.
1: how do you like it up there?
2: I mean, it was, it was what it was. (laughs) It was a nice area, but, um, I always wanted to get out. So, um, you know, I, I went to Michigan state and after that I was like, well, what do I do now? and uh I figured I would move to Europe, so I applied to a couple of grad schools, and I went
1: That's not a bad so what were you when you got to high school like what were you you said you were tomboy as a kid like were you did you continue that into high school?
2: um, I think I figured out that uh feminine wiles would get me a bit farther with things that I wanted.
1: <laughs> it's so weird there's a i just finished a book um melissa Fallavina wrote a book called Land about mm-hmm. growing up in wisconsin and about it's about gender and identity and things of that and and she uh is queer but in high school she didn't remember that she had sort of stopped being a tomboy and like all of a sudden did the you know that teenage girl thing which is that you're socially constructed to do but she didn't remember doing it like she came back and her friends were like you've changed the most since high school and she was like what and they're like you used to like you know make up like all the stuff which she doesn't do now and she was like holy shit i need to investigate why i have blocked that part of my life out Mm
2: -hmm. yeah yeah i mean I'd, i'd say it's still tomboyish but maybe maybe embracing the duality a bit more not forcing one or the other yeah
1: well, and just the social structures of the way things are, right? Like, it's yeah. uh, you, it, this is one of those like, am I really doing this because of the that, or am I doing this because the world has said, like you said, I'm gonna get a little further if I just do this thing, and mm-hmm. it's hard enough already. All stuff that we're talking about dismantling and tearing down right now is yes. everybody. Yes. just time to yeah. sit down and yeah. contemplate their lives. Yeah. So, what did that look like for you? Like, were you did you were you an athlete, or were you like a like a theater person, or like a nerdy reader kid, like me?
2: I was yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I was a little bit of a butterfly. I mean, so the high school I went to was an international high school, and it oh, nice. pulled it pulled from all of the you know surrounding school districts. You had to win a lottery and then you had to do some uh, some testing. Um, so there were you know. There was the click of, you know, the black girls, and then there was the click of the German kids, and then there was the click of the Russian kids, and then, you know, just saw the different groups. So I just kind of floated around and.
1: You lived an international life as a high school kid, like yeah. experiencing the. What made you go there? Was it your parents or were you like, since we clearly now know just in a little bit, like if you want something, you're going to mention it.
2: <laughs> um, I think it was a bit of. I really did not fit in, in the, you know, quote unquote, normal, um, school system. And this was an opportunity to do, um, an all IB, all international baccalaureate program, um, that would be a bit more challenging, um, intellectually and, you know, educationally. Um,
1: So you didn't fit in because you were, you were a smart kid.
2: Probably, um, I was a smart kid, but then also just, you know, if not the only black girl in class, you know, oh. just one of, one of a handful of, of children of color. Um, yeah. so, you know, dealt with, you know, the racial slurs from a very young age and, um, who knows what it would have happened if I had gone to, you know, the, the regular high school, but, yeah. um, So that, was,
1: for you it was really like, this is some bullshit. I would like to go somewhere some else and mm-hmm. there may still be bullshit, but it'll be new bullshit and not the bullshit I know that's coming.
2: Exactly. You that's know, the thing. Like, it's all about, it's all about finding new bullshit. Yeah. I don't, you know, I get tired of the same old bullshit. Like, and people say, you know, just stick with it. You know, you know, this is the devil, you know, and I'm like, I don't like these devils anymore. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true though, right? I think that's for, um, I mean, especially for the black experience in America, but like, I think that if you come from a place where you feel like you don't fit in and you sort of are always pushing against the dominant paradigms of things, eventually it's like, yeah, I don't think the grass is greener, but this fucking grass sucks. Mm-hmm. Like, at least let me deal with some new stuff that is like, I think that that feels very n- human and natural to me. Mm-hmm. It does not feel new, human and natural to say, well, just keep standing in front of the thing that's punching you in the face.
2: Right, right. Or, you know, <laughs> it's like, maybe, maybe my seeds don't grow in this grass. I, I'm never going to find out if they'll grow here, but I might find right. out if they grow somewhere else. So, so you go to that high
1: school and was it, what was it like? Like, what was it like being what you're like 14 mm-hmm. and all you're sort of now surrounded by people from all over the place. Did that feel like, was, like you were breathing? Like, huh like,
2: yeah, no, it was exhilarating. I mean, um, it just, I was, so, so, you know, I would take French class, but then in the French class, I would also be picking up German and Russian <laughs> and, you know, like whatever <laughs> else from, from or French you know, I was in French class, but you know, all these other um, languages and cultures and nuances from all these different people, and it was just a breath of, uh, of fresh air. Yeah.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. shopify.com slash realm are you ready to shop Rakuten's big give week is back
1: it's in i took german in high school and you know my my best friend moved to germany and i would start to take other classes like oh i want to learn spanish and they're like well if you know french you'll be able to like nobody ever said if you know german this will help you i'm like how did i pick the one language that doesn't help learn any other language like that feels like somebody should let me know that early on like it'll help you learn English. I'm like, well, I got that one already.
2: (laughs) I mean, I can work out, I can work out a little bit of Dutch with a little bit of German. I have, but that's not, it's not the same as French, Spanish.
1: No. And like French, Italian, and Spain, like there's fewer people. like Dutch is not like those other three languages are more, you can use them around the world more. You rarely run into people that are like, Oh no, I speak my language in Dutch.
2: Yeah, <laughs> like, that's just
1: not a thing. Yeah. yeah, that's been my existential horror over the years. Every time I sit in a class, I'm like, I know, I know, nothing I know is going to help me here, and I'm an old man and I struggle. <laughs> so uh, when you're when you're coming to close uh, high school, you said you went to Michigan State, and as an <laughs> Ohio person, like that's at least the wrong Michigan school. So I appreciate that <laughs> going to little brother works for me. Like, we'll not talk a whole lot about that. Were you what were you going to study? like coming out of that international environment, like
2: I went and studied international relations. (laughs) That's
1: a pretty good guess. I didn't know that was happening, but I figured that might be going on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and, and part of it was simply that, you know, James Madison college gave me the most scholarship. Um, And then obviously, you know, coming from an international school, um, all IB program, I was able to get some, some college credit transferred in from, you know, the IB so, so that's why um, you
1: decided to study that?
2: Pretty much. Um, at that point I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to be um and that, you know, that IR program was kind of a a prep for law or politics, I think is what a lot of my
1: um Yeah, I mean,
2: my peers went to.
1: Um, was that something that you were drawn to or were you were you drawn more towards the sort of being in the environment where like you were experiencing lots of different cultures and things that were happening
2: I think it it was probably more the opportunity to learn more about international I mean international things I think from high school onward have just played such a large role in my life um, and I, j- I just wanted to stick with that at that point
1: yeah and then so what are you in college like what are the Cause you're not, are you writing at this point or are you like just sort of taking everything in and experiencing, so, like experiencing this world?
2: Yeah, no, I, um, I had actually stopped her. I was, <laughs> when I was like early teens, I had been writing Star Wars fan fiction on these forums, like uh-huh. very early days. I don't know what I was doing on these forums at this age. Um, and I, you know, I was started writing my own little epics and had these bits and pieces that never quite got finished. And then at some point I stopped because it didn't seem like writing was a real job. It didn't seem like, you know, it didn't seem like it was a thing. Like it never occurred to me, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, it didn't occur to me somehow that somebody has to write the books that I'm buying. And if I'm paying money for them, then someone is receiving money. Yeah. Um, So I had set writing aside to, you know, look for, you know, serious things. And I didn't,
1: you know, like almost every writer that I've talked to has had that exact thing, which is like, they have a desire to write, but, and I've said this, like, if you want to be a lawyer, there's like a process to be a lawyer. If you want Mm -hmm. to be a doctor, there's a process to be a doctor. If you want to be an author, there's not, I mean, you can get an MFA, But that's sort of at the end. That's if you make it to, like, your mid-20s and you're like, oh, shit, my next step is to do this. But up until then, it's like, well, what do I do? What do I take? Like, how does this happen? Like, well, Mm -hmm. what is this business? Like, there is no anything.
2: Yeah.
1: And about half of the people I've interviewed have all started, like, writing fan fiction. Yeah. Like, it's just, like, that's a place you're like, oh, God, other people are doing this in a public space. Like, holy shit. Like.
2: Yeah, well... (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and you get to, you know, you get to practice. Um, and I understand that there are a lot of authors, rightfully so, they don't want people, you know, using their IP, that's fair. Sure. Um, but when you are just kind of learning and trying to understand your own style, sometimes having that kind of crutch of not having to develop full worlds and characters and just working on your craft, your style, um, helps a lot.
1: I mean, just in the in the theme of accessibility, and like it, that is a thing that allowed, I was a poor kid in Appalachia. You know, we had five, six, seven thousand people in a town. Like there was there wasn't a professional writer that I knew that lived there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I devoured science fiction, and every story that I wrote was somehow based in an Asimov world, whether I whether I said it explicitly or not. Um, And like character names were always like some riff off foundation series people or whatever. It was just like, I have it all. Like I go back and read it and I'm like, oh, okay. Like I read this book and then decided to write my version of that book. I mean, that's just, that's what you do. Why Star Wars? Other than like, it's the greatest story ever.
2: (laughs) Uh, They re-released it when I was about 10 years old. And I was just obsessed. It was the most amazing thing ever. You know, you had aliens. I guess this is going back to, like, the whole international theme that I'm thinking about it. But, you know, you had these aliens. You had the adventure. You know, I adored Han Solo. Um, I mean, this is a... Yeah. (laughs) Like, like Wedge Antilles. Like, so, you know, I bought all the books and just fell into it. Yeah. And then... um,
1: How do you not... Do you like the new Solo movie?
2: I... (sighs) I'm one of those people who very reluctantly watches the new movies because um, Wedge Antilles and and the whole Rogue Squadron series was like my absolute favorite, hands down, read it a million times. And then when the new movies came out, they were like, yeah, that's no longer canon. The extended universe is gone. And I was like, what? (laughs) You are taking my favorite character from me? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I enjoy them on a... um, you know, on a, on a sci-fi movie level. I don't adore them the way that I did the extended universe.
1: That's so funny. I, I've told people, I, lo- I love Solo. I thought I thought everybody who was in that movie did a, did a wonderful homage to the characters. Mm-hmm. And I was also, like, I'm like, I'm here for gangster Star Wars. Like, we've always heard about Han Solo being, like, a rogue. And I'm like, but anytime we see him in the actual movie, like, he's actually being, you know, heroic. He's not even being anti-heroic. He's yeah. being heroic. And yeah. I'm like, I want to see him stealing shit and blowing things up and, like going against Darth Maul like I'm here for that 100% yeah uh, which they're talking about making that movie for Disney Plus which that's worth the price of admission for me yeah right there.
2: I mean Mandalorian I binge that in a it's, weekend
1: it's so good isn't it it's mm-hmm. like it to me is the Star Wars that like I love you know <clears throat> when I was at Wired I got to meet George Lucas so I got to hang out at Lucas Ranch like so it was like sort of one that's of those moment. yeah one of those moments of like well that's okay and then I watched The Mandalorian and I watched um, uh, Rogue One and I thought, this is actually what in my head the original Star Wars is, looks like. Mm-hmm. And, every, you know, and you go back and watch it and you're like, oh, that's some 1970s graphics going on there. <laughs> like none of it. And so that's why I like it is that it, it to me it fulfills the look of what it was for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that as a seven-year-old when it originally came out or five-year-old when it originally came out, like that's what it looked like to me. So science fiction, fan fiction, got you started. You sort of put that aside as one sometimes does. (laughs) So then you're in college, you're doing the international relations stuff. And what's the plan when you finish? I decided
2: (laughs) I, no, I decided I didn't want to live in a box and that the best way to avoid that would be to study business. Um, Oh God.
1: (laughs) Oh, you never hear that sentence uttered. I didn't want to live in a box. So I studied business. Okay, let's see. Let's play this one out. <laughs> that was that was
2: literally my thought process. Um, and you I figured back
1: on that and go, well, that's a weird discussion.
2: No, I just kind of nope. accepted as that's just what was in my head. Um, can't change it. So
1: <laughs> I like I like the fact that you sort of like seem to make it. You have a thought and you're like, that's the thought. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of like. Let's just go do this and see what happens.
2: No, I mean, you know, there are pros and cons, especially when there's financial implications involved, like applying to a triple master's program in Europe when you live in the United States. Um.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Was your family like middle class or like, because like I came from like, we were, I think we were working class at best. We were like lower middle class. So like, Mm -hmm. I just kind of got used to not having money. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like you just sort of, that was a thing.
2: Yeah. No, um, upper middle growing up and my parents were always very generous in their support of yeah. my education. I mean, my, my mom, God. yeah, no, my mom always said, you know, your education is the one thing that nobody can ever take away from you.
1: It's a hundred percent true. So whatever people say like, Oh, it, I mean, it does help with mobility and things of all of that stuff. But it, to me, it was always like, once it's here, mm-hmm. nobody can take that away. And like, exactly. We may be in a room and you may, I had a boss one time tell me I didn't have the pedigree for my job. And I had to tell him that I wasn't a dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And I just thought like, but that's the, you know, it was, I was a vice president when it happened, by the way. Like I was in a senior staff meeting. Yeah. And he said that. Uh, so you can imagine how well that went, but it, that was the thing. Like in my head, that was ingrained. Like I had that sort of residual class, mm-hmm. like nobody's going to tell me I may not. And I didn't get promoted, but I was mm-hmm. like, but I know that, right? Like that, yeah. that I'm not a dog, and I don't yeah. give a shit what you say. <laughs>
2: you <Yeah. know? laughs> like, well, it's like you know, you earned that. You earned where you are.
1: Yeah, he also got fired, so that worked. <laughs> 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 that made that made the next part of my career a little easier. When there you go. the guy who thought I was a dog wasn't there anymore. <laughs> so, do you, so you're going overseas to study business? Yeah. Oh my yeah. god! And you said it's a triple major. What the fuck?
2: Yeah, it was a triple master. So I've you know three. Three MS degrees. How long did um, that take?
1: Are you still in two. school?
2: No, it took two years.
1: <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> what, so what are the three?
2: Um, two in business management and then one in international business specializing in marketing. So these, right. these three, you know, business schools, major universities got together and developed a program that would satisfy all three of them. And we started out in France. And then, you know, you had your choice for the second year to, uh, you know, for your specialization, either stay in France, move to Germany or move to the U.K.
1: What? Yeah. That's what an amazing educational opportunity. Even, even if the classes sucked, what an amazing <laughs> opportunity.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. I mean, and f- for me, this was this was coming right up to the line of when we started seeing um, changes in visa So, you know, I got to France and you know, did my studies for the first year and they said, if you want to go to the UK, you need to apply now because oh, you're they're, about to, yeah, they're, they're about to tighten this visa up. And that just became the story of the next, you know, six years, seven years in Europe.
1: Is that they're about to tighten the visa up? They're yeah, about to, make to tighten a the visa,
2: get the new visa. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs>
1: I mean, it's both funny, but also a little horrifying. Um,
2: yeah. Well, and then just yeah. to see where that evolved with, you know, this mm-hmm. populist nationalism now.
1: And what gear was that?
2: That was two thousand eight. Was when I went up.
1: So it was, it was before Brexit, Brexit was full on, but it was the beginning of the.
2: It's the beginning of the end.
1: Blah blah blah. First, right? Yes. Like whatever yes. it is. Yeah, that that joyous movement through the world. Yes. Because it was, you know, when uh, I think John and Amy moved to Berlin in two thousand and I want to say two or three is like we were finishing up our first book. And when I taught, I'd take my summers and, and I'd go over and spend them. I mean, the day school was out, I was like Mark Harmon in summer school. Like I'm on a plane. I'm out of here. Like I'll see you all the day before school starts. And we would just travel through Europe. Like there was no thoughts about anything. Like we just mm-hmm. would hop on trains and stuff. And so it's weird now when I hear like all the, Oh, well you can't do this. I mean, I have an American passport, so I can't go anywhere right now. Cause we we're, we're at <laughs> the center of the zombie outbreak. So, yeah. The European Union falling apart is the second least of my problems. <laughs> so are, are you speak fluent French? Like, are the classes in French when you're in France?
2: No, so this was an, an all-English program. Um, I did, at the time, speak fluent French. I've kind of lost it since <laughs> yeah. then.
1: Um, living in North Carolina will do
2: that. Living in North Carolina, yeah, yeah. Um, I was speaking German at the time. I did an internship in Germany um, for six months and then um, moved to the UK, so I didn't need it.
1: Right. Well, and like, it's funny, like we would always laugh if you're in a major capital city anywhere in anywhere in Europe, like nobody mm-hmm. wants to speak to you in their native tongue because they're all trying to learn English. So like I'd be in Berlin, like, oh, I'm going to get three months of German. And I'd say like, you know, good morning. And they're like, oh, you're American. And I'm like, ah, shit. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty yeah, much. I get to say hello and goodbye. That's, yeah. That's what I get to do. So you do the second year in the UK?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Birmingham. Oh that.
1: yeah. Uh, that's sort of a interesting second. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. It was, uh, it was definitely experience. I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was not the city I thought you, <laughs> of all the cities to go. Birmingham was not,
2: <laughs> Yeah. no, well, I mean, I ended up spending, um, like every other weekend in London, okay. um, just because <laughs> yeah. somehow I'd met, I'd met someone there and, um, and also Birmingham. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it it had its, uh, it had its nice points. Yeah. I do. I do miss it. And the Brummies were lovely. Yeah. Um, they would kind of corner me and, and get me to keep talking because they, you know, wanted to hear my accent. Yeah. Isn't
1: it and, weird? Like, you know, my accent's obviously a little thicker than yours, but I've told people when I'm in England, people stop me on the street. Like we do people here and they're like, say words. And I'm like, in America, people think I'm dangerous and stupid when they hear this (laughs) accent. And so it's really weird for people to be like, you know, say cowboy things. And I'm like, uh, I will, but it's weird.
2: Yeah, Yeah, no, I definitely got it more in Birmingham. London, not so much. I think just because the city is so cosmopolitan. Yeah.
1: Oh, it happened for me. I taught a theater class in London and... There, there was, like, oftentimes, like... And it's because Appalachia is the place where Shakespearean English still exists. Like, the phraseology mm. and things, like, when they do linguistic studies, like... So I didn't realize that I'm at the time, but I'm like, oh, this... They're doing this because this sounds like some version of, like, a... Tr- like, Middle English that has sort of survived. Like, this is what they... That sounds like. And yeah. I'm like, it's, and well, in America, people... Are like well that idiot didn't go to school, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Yeeha yokel's not a guess not on yeah. list of things. So you're at, you're in Birmingham and you stay you stay in England then, yeah? That's where yeah. you are for the next few years. Yep. And what are you what are you doing for work there?
2: I got a post study work visa and um, was doing marketing um, first for a you know a tech company and then I moved back into video games for a little oh. bit um, yeah. cool. video games, and then very short stint in gambling. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, that feels like a world that you should only have a short stint. In.
2: That was, that was a choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So I work at a place called the entertainment technology center right here oh, in okay. Pittsburgh. Yeah. where uh, are posh. If you have ever seen the last lecture, but what we do is they make video games. Like that's what they like. No. It's a management, um, program. It's a graduate program. So, What got you? Would you you just take that because it was a job and money, or was there something interesting about it?
2: Uh, About gambling, or no? About
1: the video games.
2: Video game. I always loved it. Um, And my the internship I took in Germany was with Nintendo, so I had you know I that was my foot in the door, and then you know.
1: Um, and they're big they are huge I, when i worked at wired like they all like at e3 and at all those places they always put on the period best period show period uh-huh. like they're really good at marketing
2: yeah no they, it was a great team it was a great team and a great experience and um you know fortunately made the connections that i needed to yeah swing something else further on
1: so um, who like what companies did you work for like big ones or smaller ones
2: a mix, if whoever um, yeah. was hiring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and some of it was market research, so that was like a really small firm, and gotcha. then switched back into browser games. Um, so there was kind of a, just a blend of like, yeah. yeah, which
1: which I feel like is the theme of your show, like that that like that sort of the experiences are what was interesting, and and <laughs> and. and, and the browser stuff had started when I was at Wired, but it really didn't get kicking until around like it was for a moment, you know, for a second it looked like those games were gonna be like huge. So that must have yeah. been sort of an interesting time. Yeah. To be Very. doing research around like what does all this mean and how do we monetize it? And mm-hmm.
2: well, and know. then the sh- the shift to mobile games as well. Yeah. That was so
1: did you do some work with mobile games?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I always said I'd never play him. And during the pandemic, I'm like, I would like to download a stupid football game that I'm now on 20, year 27. And I'm like, anytime this dress hits me, I'm just like,
2: It was fascinating because when I was working in market research, we would um, just do studies on is this, and I hesitate to use the word addictive, but you know, does this right. grab people and right. keep them in the game? does this give you the dopamine hit that you need right. in order to come back and spend another coin?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a, it, you know, obviously when I was at wired, like that was one of the things we were writing about and and they were even thinking about episodic games before nine 11. I can't remember this game, but EA put it out. It was basically like their version of an alternate reality game. Um, but it would like fax you and it would like, you'd have to give it your fax number, your phone number, all, email. And it was a conspiracy game. Uh, and you'd play each episode, but you never know when the episode would start. Um, but then nine eleven happened and they were like, they had spent all these millions of dollars making this to see, like, can we get you to play a, like on your phone and through the fax? And then obviously nine eleven happened and they were like, well, maybe sending a creepy fax it's not <laughs> saying we know where you've been is like not a good look, but like they were thinking about those things, like at, at even in, in the sort of nascent days of like, so I, I would imagine 15 years later it, or 10 years later, it was far more perfected. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they know yeah. how the page turner thing works now.
2: Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, just, just those quick hits of, of feel good. um yeah. To keep you in.
1: Yeah. So what, so, do you get back to writing at all during this time? Or are you sort of like, you're just like in the international space and doing your thing and living your best life and enjoying that
2: living my best life until it ended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, everything comes to an end. So I ended up moving back to the States um, at a really rough time. And, you know, again, going back to that theme of family, it was very fortunate that mine, without hesitation was just like, yes, come back. We'll, you know, we'll support you until you find a new job, until you get back on your feet. And that's when I rediscovered writing. Um,
1: I mean, I lived, I didn't live internationally, but like I moved to California by myself, you know? And so living internationally probably also gives you that sense of, well, I can, I'll be fine. Like I've survived in this place that was different than me and I, I thrived and it's good. It's just a matter of time before I'm back on my feet.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, I have survived as a, black female immigrant in the world's biggest, you know, financial and political capitals, I will be fine. Right. I will be, you know, I just trust (laughs) in part of it is faith, you know, having the faith that I will land on my feet.
1: Right. But also Um, you've done it,
2: but I've done it. But then, you know, in this case in particular, people supported me and you can have all the faith in the world and yourself, but there is always, I think, especially in American society, this element of you need someone there, there is no bootstraps. There, there are no bootstraps. I'm sorry. I know everybody loves the story of you know, whatever billionaire <laughs> yeah. started in his garage with a four hundred thousand dollar loan. Like right. there, are
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I talked with a guy. He's African American guy when I was in middle school, and he used to. T- he'd say he'd say the same thing. He's like, look. People who say "pull yourself up by their bootstraps" have never put on boots with straps, because if you just reach down and grab them, you're going to fall on your face. Like exactly. that's not that's not how that's not how boots work. So whoever's saying that doesn't understand mm-hmm. what those things are. And I yeah. thought, yeah, yeah, I got boots. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little loophole you can pull it through. But <laughs> you're this, just right? just- yeah, you're not, you're not yanking those things up. <laughs> So yeah, I mean that's sort of the it, it is. But I guess my point was that like I know the first when I moved to Texas and just got in my car with two bags and like drove there and sight unseen moved in with somebody who I didn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, the first year sucked. And like, and then you know, but I was I was I was determined to not go home. I'm like, I'm not gonna fail because if I fail, I'll never leave and I'll die in that town. And the town is fine, but like that is not where I wanted to die. Yeah. And you know, once you sort of survive like that, whatever comes next, you're like, I've can survive this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I can survive it. And it will be, you know. Again, it's like education. Like you can't take away from the fact that I did what it took to, to make it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: you're so how do you discover the like how do you like rediscover the love of writing? Or the if it's not love,
2: like <laughs> No, it's it's definitely love and it's definitely love hate relationship
1: <laughs> <laughs> writing. Yeah.
2: Um, that was when I started with, with fan fiction again. And, um, I use writing to work through issues and I found a community, you know, of, of people in the similar fandoms and started out by reading and then said, you know what? I, I could write something.
1: <laughs> I could do this. So again, I did you very much <laughs> on par with you. Like, yeah, I see that, but I have some thoughts on this subject.
2: I have some thoughts. I could, let me share my thoughts. Um, and I think because, you know, it's like you were saying, everything in your experience does kind of come out in your writing in one way or another. And my experience was connecting with people. And I got, you know, comments about this made me cry or I really felt this or you helped me through a bad day. And kind of around the same time I had started germinating the idea for what would eventually become Elemental. Um, which is my debut fantasy novel. And the more comments I got about like, wow, you're really good. or you know, wow. Like, you know, you made me feel something. The more I started to wonder why I was writing in other people's worlds and not my own. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I, I pivoted kind of completely out of fandom because I can't keep giving for free when I need to, you know, have the space in my head to create a whole new world.
1: So it's funny because I and we've talked about this and I, I talk about it all the time on the show. I am 100% convinced that everybody who's writing, unless you're in the business of writing, like there are people that I know who like, and I've interviewed them and like when they do their thrillers, like they sit down with their agents and you know, they sort of figure out like this is what the market's going to do. And they write that. So they're mm-hmm. like, and that to me is a, a 100% legitimate writing. That is a thing. But people that like are like, if you drill down into why they started writing, It's always something was happening. I needed a way to process through and figure out what it was. And then I needed to find my voice in that thing. And Mm -hmm. even if I'm not writing directly about what it is, like that's where that shit comes from. Yeah. Like it's just, it's why, I I think it's why writers say like, I had to write. I didn't have any other choice but to write. It's because... And this is like what my therapist told me. She's like, if you didn't have writing, you would have probably killed yourself. And I'm like, I 100% would have because this shit was not working and it yeah. needed to go out. Even when it was just journals, it just needed to get out.
2: Yeah. No, it's, I, I think I was probably in a similar place. Um, I was like, let me get two cats. So I have two reasons. <laughs> I got they say you, just need, yeah. <laughs> like, you know they say you just he'll... need one reason not to and i said well let me get two
1: yeah just in case a car catches. <laughs> just one.
2: in case right like fail safes um yeah, it's and funny then, i'm know, looking right for right. a
1: house because i'm like i need to get another dog max is 10 oh like right right <laughs> people that yeah. go through that are like well yeah you need another you younger need another dog d- immediately <laughs> 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 so you got your two cats you got your little place that you never leave yeah you need <laughs> you need something you need something
2: yeah so you know it's something was writing and um it's helped it's helped tremendously and
1: and you think, went like this is full like i got the book coming uh mm-hmm this is like kind of sci-fi kind of D and D stuff kind of fantasy, right? Like it's got like, it's sort of got all of the different things in it.
2: So it's, um, it's, it's an urban fantasy, contemporary yeah. fantasy. So, um,
1: I don't know the genre. So that's why I always describe <laughs> things like that. I'm like books, See, are books to me and I hate putting them in labels because things uh, are oftentimes so many different things.
2: Mm-hmm. I'd say, yeah. So the D and D aspect is probably fair. I, <laughs> <laughs> either elves or vampires. Yeah, or That's girls. what I mean.
1: Like I was reading, I'm like, yeah, yeah no, I've played all these characters. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it was one of those things where, um, you know, you mentioned agents and in in saying like writing to market. Right. Um, I pitched the agents. I got full requests. I got, you know, partials. I got really good feedback and they kept saying, well, you know, vampires aren't in right now, or, you know, this isn't, this isn't to my list. And I'm like, you know, okay, fine. Right. I will choose myself. <laughs>
1: right. Which is, it's always great when they say that. Cause I know they're in a business, but when they're like vampires aren't in, I'm always like, I mean, okay.
2: Well, and what, what got published this year, a vampire book right. and you know, another one of, um, the twilight series. And I'm like, don't, tell me
1: that's what, what i mean it like I it's mean. always not in until it is and so like i understand the business and i do not begrudge agents any of that stuff but like no, no. part of the reason i stepped away from the traditional publishing world because i'm like i just don't write things that fit into a thing
2: mm-hmm. and yeah i mean well for me it was a combination of that and just the very um i think visible racism that is becoming even more visible i, w- I don't think i was aware of it to begin with but then just the series of events between December and now in publishing. And I'm just like, you know what? (laughs) Let me keep my own coins.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's funny. Like, you know, when I reached out to you, we were talking um, and what, you know, originally this show, I had a whole mix of like small publishing in, you know, I did very little big publishing folks and we ran as. A, a writing collective where we published our own books. Like we didn't do any of that stuff. And like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I've always told folks like there, if you, there's a way to build a career with your own thing, it's difficult and it's harder, but then you own it and you never have to have a discussion with a publisher about who owns the master tapes, right? Like you own them and you get to do with them what you want. And there is a certain freedom that I am willing to trade, like are not willing to trade for the economics of like, <clears throat> going into a big machine that may or may not spit you out in a positive way
2: (laughs) right yeah no exactly exactly so
1: and then outside of like you know you have the other part of like being a woman and being a person of color like well that's then the extra shit like do i really Mm -hmm. want to deal with because they'll be you know
2: Mm -hmm. do i want them to whitewash my covers do i want them to change you know something in the text that's actually quite important to me right I think I saw the cover on Twitter. Like, I think you had tweeted out something and I was like, Oh, that's
1: a fucking sci-fi. But like (laughs) before I knew what it was, I'm like, yeah, I want to, I want to read that book. That's it. Who did the cover? Did you do it?
2: No, no. It was a guy uh, called Pintado on 99 designs. And, um, I ran this contest, not knowing what I would get. And he came in at like, in the last hour that it was running really? and, and, and showed that. And I was like, this one, this is the winner, hands down. Yeah. Um, so he's done the it, second book as well.
1: And and like that's when you say whitewashing, the co- like that wouldn't have been a cover that a publishing house would have put out at all. No,
2: no. Um, and it's, um that I think would have been a shame for more reasons than one. I mean, my mom showed the book to one of her students, um, you know, a young black girl. And, and the girl was like, can I read that book? Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's, you know, because, and specifically because there was, a woman of color on the cover with her natural hair looking yeah. powerful. And it's like, yeah.
1: with like gigantic lightning shit coming down by like I was in, I'm like, yeah, I, I'm going to read this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, and, I, and I love that. I love that reaction because we keep hearing, you know, people of color, uh, people of color on the, on the covers books won't sell. But you've just said, I saw that and I wanted to read yeah. it. So it's like, who is coming up with these ideas of what will and won't sell?
1: Right. And this is the thing, right? Like it's like, yeah, there's going to be a certain percentage of people that don't read that. But like, mm-hmm. you know what? It doesn't, you could change your name to A.B. Johnson and put a white, and they're still not going to read it. Those people are not readers.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <I'm>, they're not <laughs> readers or, or they don't read that genre or that, you know, they don't read whatever. And it's yeah. like, if, if, if that's the reason that they're not reading a book, there are bigger problems than (laughs) that.
1: Right. That's, it always seemed to me that the, and you work in marketing, so you know this better than me, but like, it just always felt like there was, somebody said, we've, we've looked at this population and they don't do a thing. So that's what happens. And I'm like, there's many populations and there's also many ways to get into populations. And you can, the populations aren't just uh, vertical. There's also horizontal things. And so you can find your ways into like, you can find your ways into those things. Like Mm -hmm. you just can, like yeah. My lived experience is that. I think most people's lived experience is that.
2: Yeah. No. Well, and, and the other thing about marketing, it's about creating a market and convincing right. people that you want this thing. The whole thing right. is around convincing people to buy this thing that they maybe didn't know existed. So it's like, are we truly doing our jobs if we're not presenting the wide variety of, of what could be available?
1: Yeah. I came across Elizabeth May. She has a thing called the Falconer series. And I don't even know if that's put out by... I rarely look at like who's published the book, right? Like just like when I put on money waters, I'm not like, ah, who, who, what was the, you know, who published this? I'm just like, it's money Waters. I'm going to listen to that. I would have never come across the Falconer series had it not been for Twitter. Um, and she's like, a very outspoken feminist who, I think she lives in Scotland now. Um, mm-hmm. I think she's American, but I don't even know. But it was just like, I found her Twitter feed. I'm like, well, this is an interesting Twitter feed. And then she posted this, you know, like, oh, the new Falconer was out. And I just bought all three books, sight unseen. I'm like, well, again, it's the premise of the show. She seems like an interesting person. Mm-hmm. So whatever she does, I'm sure it's going to be of interest to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I'm a reader. And it's like, that's, I don't understand reading stuff in other ways. Yeah. Um, so the first book came out when
2: June 23rd. So it's, yeah.
1: like it just came out and it how, just long came did, out. how long did it take you to do that?
2: I decided to self publish in January.
1: Oh shit. You cranked that out in six months.
2: I mean, the book was ready. I, like I said, I'd been shopping it around with agents. Um,
1: but how long did it take you to write it?
2: It was my November NaNoWriMo. Really? Uh, 2018. So so you banged out a
1: draft in that 30 days? Did you win?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I had like uh, 70,000 words.
1: That's crazy. Yeah. Every year I try that and I'm like, after day four, I'm like, no, I don't have the stamina for this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's, um, you know, just going to sit down and make a schedule. No matter yeah. how many words you get down in a day, just write something.
1: Yeah. So I make a schedule and then I'm like, I don't like that. By day five, I'm like, nope, I don't like the schedule.
2: <laughs> I'll do that and then I'll go, okay, well, then write in the morning instead. Right. I have to do these little games, these little compromises.
1: <laughs> Which makes sense coming from the world that you did. Like, how do I get myself to pay the coin <laughs> to write the book? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you used your experiences marketing on yourself to... <laughs> I mean, that's good. So you wrote sense. it in 18 and then you like spent time revising it through 19?
2: Yep. Um, I had the help of a great editor. Um, Jenny Chappelle was amazing with the developmental edit and I learned so much out of that.
1: Where did you so, find her? Twitter. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you find everybody on Twitter. Yeah.
1: Um, and you know, she's Every, local to... everybody for better and worse.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. For better and worse. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so that book two was written in 2019. Same thing. still yeah. a nano nano. Um, so November is your writing month. November is my writing month. Um, it's going to be a publishing month as well because the book two is coming out on November 20th.
1: So is is it a series is elemental a series now? It is. So that's the other reason not to go through a publisher because like if you'd have taken that and it didn't do well, you wouldn't have that.
2: Yeah. Well, it would be that. And then, you know, people would be waiting two years for the next book and I'm already having people saying, can I have it? I'm like, it'll be three months, but you know,
1: yeah. (laughs) Do you have pre-orders up for it? Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. So like the the business and marketing is coming in handy. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, the business.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: And how do you like, I'm a big proponent of self-publishing and not for everybody, but like part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, just like, again, just sort of looking through what you had had. I'm like, Oh, this is not somebody that just wrote a thing, mm-hmm. didn't edit it put it and that has its benefits too right like there's there's I just don't generally have that kind of person on the program because mm-hmm. they're still early in their career but like you have a plan like you have mm-hmm. a plan for what this is what you want this to look like how you mm-hmm. want to grow this absolutely um, how do you feel about it at this point
2: good um, I definitely feel like this was the right choice for me. I, I mean, we've been talking throughout the program, how I'm like, I'm going to do this and we're just going to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and nothing, I mean, you know this about yourself,
1: right? Like yeah, you haven't yeah. just discovered. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, no, I, I know. And I, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. I jump sure. into something and it doesn't quite work out, but when it does, um, I just have to keep momentum and just keep going.
1: Yeah. It's the, the, for me, It is the power of it being my own thing Mm -hmm. um, that at the end of the day, you know, like when you look back at the history of literature, a lot of these people that we read today did this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, And so it's always funny when when it gets privileged into like the big five and I'm like, yeah, look, I'm a believer in gatekeepers and Twitter is a really good example of what happens when you remove them. Like Mm -hmm. everybody can come, uh, but everybody can come, right? And so (laughs) like there there does need to I don't know what the system looks like but there does need to be some kind of like ability to filter out some things but to imagine that we only read literature today because it was published by like major publishers is like not at all what the history of this shit looked like
2: yeah
1: um, yeah you know and it's just it. That's it is important for me on the program to have people that come from different versions of that just to remind everybody that uh, yeah, yeah just because it's in you know Harper Collins doesn't mean it's not a book and that it's not, you know, it hasn't, it's not professional. Right. Like,
2: yeah. Um, yeah. Trust me. Them. Trust me. This is professional. <laughs> right. I mean, there's no way for the editors can, and you know,
1: yeah, there's no way anybody can look at the cover. If you know anything about books and not, and mm-hmm. not think like, Oh, well this is like, this was not done with some little program.
2: No, no, this was. I tried to do everything perfect, you know, because there's that other thing of, of indie or self-published books, having a reputation of being poor quality. That's what I mean. Right. And I'm like, that's not going to happen to me because this is my way to self-sufficiency. Right. And we're going to do it right.
1: Yeah. we uh, When I was at the writing collective that we started, like anytime we, we published books and we published a literary journal. And many times it was from people that were first year or first time authors or people earlier in their career. And we'd edit and copy it them. And I would tell the sort of partners like, this is professionalized amateurism. Like just because we, these are amateurs does not mean that we treat them like they're amateurs. We treat them like they're professionals. And we were all professionals. We had all like and I was like, so we bring what we have to them so that they can see what this looks like at the end. Mm-hmm. And then they can be proud of the thing that they put out there in a way that adds to the proud that they already had for getting it published, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 that'll make them want the next thing to look like that because that's how we all learn. Yeah. The first things we all wrote were pieces of shit. Yes. Right? <laughs> you know? yes. So the fact that we're better at it now doesn't mean we were better at it then. Yes. And God love them. Like we, everybody was sort of on that page and it was... It, it, that's, it's one of the things that I try to extol is that like professionalized amateurism is, I mean, I've had a, prof- when we published our book, the copy editor mm-hmm. that worked at, at a publishing company, we had to hire somebody else because they were, I'm like, just because they worked there doesn't mean that they're actually, that they cared enough because our book wasn't a top line book. Yeah. So it was like, well, we got two days to copy edit a hundred thousand words
2: okay yeah let me know how that works that's yeah no that's not enough time no
1: so when we got the rights back we hired a copy editor and it took her like 40 days and she mm-hmm. sent us the whole copy edited bible and it's the second edition is the we act like the first edition didn't come out <laughs> which was published by a major publisher we're like <laughs> the second book is the book
2: mm-hmm. no there you go there <laughs> yeah. you go and that's a perfect example of you know i think where people's um preconceived notions about what is correct, or, or how we should publish, um, are keeping a lot of people out.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, like <laughs> as you know um, better than uh, most people. So the second book, what's the second book called? Do you have a name for it yet?
2: Yep, it's Eldritch Sparks, and it is um, it continues her story.
1: So I like that. What mm-hmm. is the cover out yet?
2: Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I need to tweet. I've I've been taking a little social media hiatus. I kind of got overwhelmed with everything <laughs> going on in the world and just went, you know what, let's take a break.
1: <laughs> it felt really good. Didn't it?
2: It did. Yeah. Um, I'm, I think I'm going to extend it a little bit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the cover for book two is out. It's on uh, my Instagram and my Twitter account and, um, response
1: so far so. that's amazing well yeah. look this has been so much fun to talk to you and i literally just got a note from while we were doing this interview from the post office saying that your book is arriving today okay. <laughs> so i now have my weekend plan set aside because i've been reading really heavy stuff uh mm-hmm. land i just finished negro land i'm like i need to read something that is not nonfiction. That is going to be fun and allow me to escape into a place that is unlike where i live <laughs> Which is in my apartment with my dog. <laughs> so I'm ho- hoping it's not set there. I'm hoping that's not the setting of the urban fantasy.
2: No, no. It's uh, it's here in the triangle in, uh, in Durham.
1: That is not shocking. Yeah. <laughs> <That is> not <laughs> shocking. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't wait to read the book.
2: And of course. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, thanks for ordering the book.
1: Yes. Have a great day.
2: Thanks. You too. Take care.
1: Okay book nerds There you have it That was Whitney Hill Whose book Elemental is out now Eldrick Sparks is coming out in November So go ahead and You can pre-order that right now I hope you enjoyed listening to that As much as we love recording it She is so brilliant and smart And funny and driven I just love talking to writers like that. Before we get out of here, a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, and again, if you're here at the end, I know you did, do us two favors. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast Queen, Molly McLear. And can't wait for our new episodes that come out on Monday and Thursday. You can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet.